Do you remember when you got your first smartphone? Now, some of you might be out there and say, ha, I still haven't gotten one. Good on you. Mine, my very first smartphone, was all the way back in 2007. It was a Motorola Q. It didn't last for very long, and this was right when Blackberries were starting to gain prominence. But I gotta tell you, I loved that smartphone. It was one of the first times in my life I could be the kid on the block with the new toy, right? I got a Nintendo like five years after all my friends did. But this, I got my, my smartphone. I felt so cool. For the first time, I was able to receive and send emails wherever I was. Now, they took three hours to send because, you know, but still, I could receive them. And then it started, like, oh, I could connect to Facebook. I could see what my friends were eating at any time. It was magic. I felt so much more connected to the world and felt like I could do more. Right now, I felt more efficient. Why sit on a bus and do nothing but stare out a window when I could be sending messages to people? It was great. And I'm sure, like lots of you, I do not know where I would be at this point in 2022, what, 15 years after my first smartphone? I don't know where I'd be without it anymore. There is so much I can do on this little device. Y'all might notice that there's times when I've kind of got it carried with me throughout the service. It's because on this little device, I can run all of the presentation stuff right here. You know, I can take cool pictures. I, thinking about this last night, the thing I'm just so over the moon about is I have a flashlight wherever I need to go. Because you know the flashlight you need is somehow buried in that junk drawer, and it's going to take you 35 minutes even to just get it open so then you can get the flashlight. I don't have to do that anymore. All I got to do is slide one. There you go. All right. Alarm clock, remote control for my TV, and yes, I can still email back and forth on it. And I'm sure that for many of you, and I know because I, I know there's some folks watching, I get to see who's watching online, I know there are some of you right now who simply by the fact that you had this device or something similar to it, you could actually come and visit our worship service today. Again, welcome to all of you who are online. That's really, really good. It's really good that we can find ways to connect even if we're not here. But of course, that connectedness has its downsides. There is a constant feeling anymore of needing to feel connected. For many of us, our first and last connections with the world are to our cell phones. When was the last time you might have turned over and said good morning to your spouse before checking your phone? When was it? I'm even trying to remember. How many of us have lost track of time by constantly... Thank you, Abe, for being honest. How many of us have lost track of time scrolling through apps like Reddit or TikTok, playing games... 
You know, many apps are actually built around the fact that they take advantage of the way our brain works and then sucks us in, gives us little releases of dopamine. So we keep going and we keep scrolling and, you know, there's a reason why there is a phrase like surveillance capitalism, the idea that there is a whole economy built around getting our data because we just are scrolling and scrolling and giving up so much. That makes us feel good. And after a while, you know, a decade plus in of having my smartphone, if I'm honest with you, I'm beginning to hate it a little bit more. I regret how it takes time away from my family. I regret that, yes, more often than not, the first object I greet in the morning is my phone. And the truth is, while connected, device, connected devices, they have our limit. They have their limits. And we learned this in the height of COVID, right? When we were all sequestered to our homes and we were desperate for human interaction, Zoom came through. Were any of us in 2019 thinking to ourselves, you know what we really need? It's an online service. No. We were fine with everybody here. So that COVID experience and that technological experience gave us an opportunity that we could grow closer even when we were apart. But eventually, we all missed real connection. We started thinking to ourselves that if we left our phones aside for a while and touched a little bit of grass, we might be better off. Now, that doesn't mean that in my sort of lament and frustration and anger in my phone that I'm apt to throw it against the wall. There's other reasons to throw your phone against the wall. Or that I'm going to mount some campaign against the cell phone makers of this world. They're just providing a product. But I suppose it does leave me and each of us with a choice. Do I abandon something that has become so familiar, so pedestrian, so built into my way of life and change my life in order to participate in something that might be better and richer over time? Or do I keep that dream at arm's length to feel good about what's to come and actually just end up tweeting about how much I hate my phone on my phone, irony of ironies? And if I'm honest with you, at this point, I continue to choose the latter. Now, I wonder if cell phones had existed in Jesus' time, if he would have said, instead of hating your mother and father and your children and yourself, he would have said, you have to hate your cell phone and follow me. There might be all sorts of replacements and analogies that would update Jesus' exhortation here in Luke to the throng of followers around him at the moment. Again, you have to hate your cell phones and follow me. You have to hate your hard-earned status in life and come follow me. You have to hate your political affiliations and come follow me. The things that we love to hold dear... Jesus is inviting us to consider that we might need to hate them in order to follow him. Now, Jesus here is not so much saying you have to have a loathing towards good things, but instead is asking seriously about our priorities if we think discipleship is for us. Now, let's keep in mind what Jesus has been doing for the last period of time. He has done some pretty 
spectacular things. He's brought people to life. He's fed thousands. He is a captivating teacher and a miracle maker just walking around the Judean countryside. And I'll tell you what, if I had nothing else to do and I saw some of this stuff happening, I would be very apt to go follow this curious rabbi. No doubt there were lots of people who were curious about this rabbi to want to know what's really happening and then want to be a part of it. And Jesus obviously knows this. We start this passage today where Jesus is now turning to the folks, a very classic thing for Luke to do to trigger that we're going to start a new conversation, turns to them, and he provides a little bit of a gut check to those who are going to follow. If you are really for real about this, you're going to want to take a moment, take a step back, and think about the implications of what you're going to do. Now, this helps to make the last part of this passage make a little bit more sense because, honestly, it's a bit of a head-scratcher to go from hating things around you to then buildings and kings. No one setting out on building a new building is just going to start throwing things into their cart at Home Depot. You know, I got to build a shed. I think it needs nails and wood and maybe a hammer and I don't know, some, something to put on the roof, right? You can do that, but unless you really like to wear the road out between your home and the nearest, you know, uh, hardware store, you're going to get exhausted at the end of it. And no one setting out to begin a battle won't at least discern the enemy to know what their capacity is. And I suppose you could, but in all likelihood, you're going to lose the battle. So success then, the goal desired, rests in large part in the discernment ahead of time. If you're going to undertake a massive undertaking, it would be wise to do a little bit of planning ahead of time before you get started. Think about it this way. What if, before you got your very first smartphone, someone explained to you the costs and the benefits? What happens if that T-Mobile salesperson said to you, well, you know, this iPhone certainly is nice. But you know you're going to be on it all the time. You know your parents are going to find comics and are going to email them to you talking about back in my day we used to talk to each other. But you know you might find yourself more disconnected in the end you might find yourself addicted, and perhaps at the end, this connectedness might not be the thing you're really all that excited about anymore. If someone had discerned with you the costs and benefits of this new technology, might it have adapted the way that you used it? Might you have made some strategic decisions at the beginning in what applications you decided to put on it, how much you chose to use it, and how much you decided to leave it at home. I think I would have, at least for a while. 
So what is this like in our walk of faith then? Well, I think for some of us, we have to take this hard moment of discernment. Jesus says, you know, you really have to do some serious consideration about this whole discipleship thing. Really got to think about it before you decide you want to keep following. I think for some of us, like the rich young ruler or the person spitefully using their cell phone, even still, we might take the present over the promise of the future and walk away. Sure, everything that Jesus is doing is terrific. I love this guy. Man, have you seen him telling people, God, God give to the poor, giving people food and fishes? Love the guy. I'm feeling pretty good where I'm at. Even more so, though, we're apt to hold the promises of Jesus as quaint visions upon the horizon, never truly to be taken seriously, but always hoped for if only our conditions would change. I would love to see miracles happen if somehow somebody would get this phone out of my hand. But I think more graciously, it's an insight that we often don't want to say out loud within the confines of the church. To make this decision, to really double down with Jesus and say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it all, I'm going to rethink, I'm going to reprioritize, it requires a whole lot of trust. It requires a lot of trust in Jesus, first of all, that all these things we only read about and that we're not sure happened, maybe happened, we'd like to believe these miracles occurred, but we're not convinced all the time, that there could actually be some reality to it, and it's not just a bunch of antiquated stories telling us how to live better. But it also means we'd have to trust each other. That this extension of God here on this earth, the bride of Christ, however you want to say it, the still-continued physical manifestation of Jesus Christ in this world, full of broken, imperfect people, this extension of Christ here can truly live into its promises that it commits to. So let's have a thought exercise, because I, I'm actually I'm struggling with this this week, but, but let's do this. Let's say one of you here today one of you online, decides that after this sermon, you say, okay, I'm going to give it all. Everything that I have, everything that I've ever worked for, I am going to give to Jesus Christ today. In a couple months, we'll have our... our um, our stewardship pledges, and you write, at the dollar sign, you cross that off, and you just write everything. You hand it in here on Consecration Sunday, and one of us looks at it, and the first thing we're like, okay, I think this person might be losing their mind. We call you up and say, uh, your, your pledge card says everything. To which you reply, yes. Everything. Well, what do you think would happen? Well, I think the first thing that would happen is we wouldn't know what to do. But after we got over the sort of wandering in the wilderness, we'd probably think first, oh my gosh, if this person is going to give us everything, their house, 
every single bit of treasure. They're going to give 100% of themselves. We should probably figure out a way to care for them. This congregation would jump up. I can already see it. You'd say, okay, well, this person still have a home. Well, we got to get them a home. Does this person have something to eat? Somebody needs to go to the grocery store. What if they're sick? How are we going to get them to the doctor? Because they don't have a car anymore. Suddenly, you'd start to see love that maybe you'd never seen before. Suddenly, the church would start looking like the church a little bit more. But here's the downside of it. It also means that every single one of us would all of a sudden have this tremendous responsibility foisted upon us. It would be our job to care for one of you in entirety. Oh my gosh, I can hardly take care of my children. I can hardly take care of myself. Now we as the church have to take care of one of you who has offered everything to us? Whew. That is a lot of responsibility. Now, that's probably not going to happen with our finances because the system we're in would make it incredibly hard to just buy your house and pay your rent and take care of all those things. But I do believe that this already happens every single day with our hearts and our spirits and our souls. The passage here in Luke reminds us that what we offer here, individuals, each one of us, is priceless. And while it might sound esoteric, we offer a part of ourselves that has no way to index its value. We give our hopes, we give our dreams, we give our beliefs, we give our stories, our fears, our anxieties, all for the promise of something truly spectacular and miracle-making, Jesus Christ, in our midst. Karl Barth often would say that what we do every Sunday is just simply ask the question, is this true? To which we want to hear God resolutely say yes. And if we give it too flippantly, we find half-built spiritual homes and ill-waged spiritual battles, we find ourselves leaving wounded and deconstructed. But if we don't give it all, we relent to the imminent and aspirational with little belief in something else but screens and fleeting riches. So we have to discern well, even in our own hearts, this incredibly valuable part of ourselves for what Jesus is offering in return. And what it means for each of us as well is a discerning, dedicated response. It demands a special discernment amongst those of us who are called to be leaders. For goodness sakes, if you are offering your heart, I should be wise to make sure that it is well cared for. What pastor worth their salt does not recognize what you give here in this place? 
It shouldn't just be me that's thinking about it, but every single person that calls themselves an elder, every single person who's ever called themselves a deacon needs to remember that what is offered here in the church is the very core of who we are. Souls connected to one another. It also demands a commitment of each of us that the riches of our very selves should be treated as such. Yeah, I know some folks are annoying sometimes, but they're beautiful, beloved children of God. The most curmudgeonly person has a wealth in their heart and soul far beyond any measure, anything that ever could go through an offering plate. It is themselves. What we owe to each other then is a heart for a heart, a spirit for a spirit, and a soul for a soul. And I recognize that this then is a gambit of the highest order with the largest consequence. Which might help us to understand why Jesus says in this moment, you gotta reevaluate your priorities before you really wanna do this. Because the stakes are incredibly high. But here's the magic. It does happen even still. It is happening and it will happen. Our precious, priceless, fragile hearts are responded to when we reach out to each other. Our deep, resonant, Serious desire to be a responsible caretaker of this world is performed once we pick up those who are reaching out. And for a moment, when that happens, when we connect one to another, heart to heart, spirit to spirit, soul to soul, we sense miracles in our midst. We find that there is a moment to touch the grass beyond each of our cell phones. So our question and our task then as a church, as we are heading towards a new programmatic year, as we're continuing to transform ourselves to something new, opening our arms wide to this community, it may be to consider how we create a church that supports and caretakes what Jesus' demands are. That is a forever ongoing task with new means, but an ever-consistent end and a never-changing heart. There is a spectacular world on the other side of discipleship. And maybe we don't do it the same way we did 15, 20, 50 years ago, but it's okay. There will be things that we will have to hate, so to speak, in order to follow Christ. We should be unscrupulous in knocking down the things that stop us from connecting our hearts to one another. This is only truly done with the Spirit's help. I pray to Jesus all the time, please take my phone away, Jesus. But as you reflect at the table today and beyond this Sunday, I just ask you to think about that both in giving and receiving, 
how do we continue to create a space for the extravagant, priceless, holy hearts and spirits amongst the saints here and for those who are to come? And imagine if we just commit to that, to trying to figure it out. Because we will make our mistakes. We will be imperfect. Imagine that's where we'll see miracles anew. Imagine we might meet Jesus there. Thanks be to God.